0: faculty at uh, Campbell University School of Law for having us here today. This is the second sitting. uh, All three of us happen to be proud alumni of this law school, as as was the first panel. I'd like to recognize some of my clerks and staff who are here, uh, Michael Coates, Caroline Pope, and Christine Dunn, and um, I think Judge Carpenter has some folks he wants to introduce as well. We've got Adam Chalmers over in the jury box, and Jacob Stewart out here, and Marissa Dunsmith is coming on board with me as soon as she graduates.
1: Great. I have an intern here, Michael.
2: Michael, I don't
0: know your last name. So <laughs> <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> okay, we have uh, one case on the docket this afternoon. Uh, Kevin Jones versus the North Carolina Department of Public Safety. Um, for those of you in the audience, it's going to be a little unusual because we have cross appeals in this case. So the order of presentation is going to be a little different than what we normally do. So um, according to the, I think you both got the order that was sent out. According to the order, we will first hear from the defendant appellate, um, argument in chief.
3: reasonable and consistent with the facility's policies. This is an appeal from an administrative agency directly to the court, correct? Correct, Your Honor. Uh, what is this court's standard of review of the decision of the Industrial Commission? Your Honor, this court reviews the Industrial Commission's uh, decisions uh, to answer two questions. First, whether the Commission's findings are fast and supported by competent
1: evidence, and second, whether its findings of fact justify its conclusions. Uh, this court will not disturb the factual findings of the commission as long as competent evidence supports those findings. But there are some mixed questions of law and fact that the Industrial Commission must decide. When it does so, guy's work ask if the factual findings support the Industrial Commission's conclusion? Concerning the state's appeal, the state carries the board to show error. Right. Uh, at least as far is what the state's appealing. That's correct, right, um, so for me, at least a subject matter jurisdiction question. I know that the order on appeal, he was entered on before April 2023, but your notice of appeal wasn't given until 12 May 2023, outside the 30 days. Nothing in the record shows me that it was filed in time. Can you address that? Your Honor, I'm afraid I came uh, There's one final important point on the standard review, and that is that this court is not bound by the labels the Commission assigns to of its decisions. So if the Commission makes a conclusion about the law or mixed question,
3: this court's review is not hamstrung simply because the Commission incorrectly labeled the conclusion a fact. Um, I want to turn to the Commission's the Industrial Commission's uh, findings now. The Industrial Commission aired when it concluded that the defendant had noticed and reasonably should have anticipated that a violent interaction between Clean and Mr. Jordan was likely to occur.
0: So, as, long as, sorry, as long as they are supported by competent evidence,
3: for the record. Are yes, you, you challenging that? Yes, Your Honor. So uh, I'm happy to turn to the uh, lack of competent evidence for uh, the conclusion that Sergeant Pryor had noticed. I don't want to direct your argument, but I just want to make sure that you
0: know when we're looking at a, at a closed factual record. Uh, our, our ability as an appellate court is very limited on our ability to review or to change that. I agree, Your Honor. Here, I think that looking at the commission's finding the fact, their findings of fact don't support
3: their ultimate conclusion that Sergeant Fire had noticed. But I'm happy to turn to my argument that competent evidence of the record does not support uh, the finding that Sergeant Fire did have. So there is one thing in Decision that it labels a factual finding uh, that might support the conclusion that Sergeant Fire had missed. This is in factual finding number 15. The Commission states that it was defendant staff or all notice that a violent altercation between plaintiff and Mr. Jordan was likely to occur. That is not a factual finding. That is a conclusion about a mixed question of law and act. We know that because it is almost verbal. Uh, law. But even if you treat that as a minor fact, it is not supported by competent evidence in the record. It's helpful to look at exactly what the Officer Filter testified she told Sergeant Pryor. She said uh, that she asked for backup because she felt that something was off, but also tell Sergeant Pryor that she was quote, probably overreacting. In requesting that, she did not tell
2: Sergeant Fire that she heard the Mr. Jones because did Mr. Jones. She did not tell Sergeant Fire that Mr. Jones requested additional protection. Again, she couldn't Mr. Jones didn't request additional protection. Uh, you know, contrasting these facts with the facts in this court's decision in Taylor, I think, reveals. Uh, Why this evidence is insufficient, and then the industrial commission supplied Taylor. In Taylor, you had the prisoner himself tell prison guards, Do not put this other prisoner in the cell, it will be trouble. The The prison
3: guards knew that the assailant and the plaintiff had a history of conflict. I think uh, Taylor found, the industrial commission found in Taylor, that the plaintiff. Uh, the assailant was associates of two other prisoners that the plaintiff had previously been in conflict, but here we lack both of those findings.
0: This reporter didn't ask for help because he did not feel pregnant, and there was no history of conflict between the two. Um, the court in Taylor Hill that those, were, those facts were sufficient, correct? Correct, Your Honor. Because they were... Present in Taylor and they were sufficient in Taylor, does that in your view mean that the facts that we have here are not sufficient? That's are you saying that Taylor is the standard? I'm not sure it compels that conclusion, Your Honor, but I think looking at what Taylor found issues black here it shows how short
1: sergeant fire was So would a defendant's request uh, for you know, extra would that carry more weight than the Department of Correction Officers request for backup?
3: Not necessarily, Your Honor. Again, I think it is a totality of the circumstances analysis, so a, a prisoner's request for protection coupled with uh, a request for backup by a corrections officer is very strong, almost certainly reduced uh, here, the problem is there wasn't a
1: request by the transcript additional
2: this court in cases like vulnerability
1: Come out? Yes, Your
3: Honor. I, I will be sure to do that. Thank you. All right. Uh, according to the order, the second presentation will be the plaintiff, appellate, appellees, argument in chief. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is John Merritt, and I represent
4: Mr. Kelvin Jones, the plaintiff, appellant, appellee in this matter. Your Honor, may I clarify, are we arguing with a total time of 15 minutes or 30 minutes? You have 30 total. 30 total. Yes. Uh, May you, Mayor, you want to reserve, are you going to reserve time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. May I reserve 10 minutes? 10 minutes? Okay. Okay, that's fine. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honors,
2: Mr. Kelvin Jones, respectively requests that this court reverse or ban the decision of the full commission of the
4: Industrial Commission, specifically as to hold for conclusions of law made found in paragraph 17 of the Commission's decision and order, the holding that Correctional Officer Booker acted reasonably in responding to the violent altercation between Mr. Jones and the assailant. And second, the holding
2: that plaintiff failed to adequately show that there was an inadequate number of guards stationed in cell locks, D, E, and F, at the time of the attack. Your Honours, there are two sub-points to my first point and one to my second. As to the first point regarding Officer Booker's
4: actions, first sub-point is that Mr. Kelvin Jones contends that the findings of fact made by the Commission do not support the ultimate conclusion of law, And second, that the findings of fact are not supported by common evidence. The one sub-point to my second point in the, in the accuracy of the number of guards is simply that the findings of fact do not support the conclusion of law. I welcome the court's questions at any time. Without any right now, I'll
0: move to my first point. Let, let me get a procedural matter out of the way. On page uh, 54 of the record. Uh, your notice of appeal. I think Judge Collins raised this earlier. You filed a notice of appeal on March 12th. Excuse me, May 12th. Yes, sir. And the order was entered on April 4th. Yes, sir. And the other parties filed on the third from the order. Yes, sir. Uh, do you want to address that issue from your side,
4: uh, Your Honor? I believe I believe that April 4th was the final decision in order. And that the defendant appeal by May third, which would have been right there on the last day that they were able to. And I believe that the appellate rules, or I'm sorry, the, the rules of appellate procedure, and I'm going to, so unfortunately i unfortunately forget the exact rule, but I believe it allows an additional ten days for the cross appellant to appeal after the appeal was filed, especially when it's on the last day. There's so little notice here. Uh, are you asking a question regarding uh, on the subject matter of the plaintiff's jurisdiction here, or uh, I was the just want to clarify the difference in the. In I think we all agree the order was filed April 4th Yes, sir. and that the, the state filed their appeal on May 3rd and you filed yours on the 12th. Yes, sir. So Your Honor. So your contention is you would have had 10 days from the filing of their appeal to file a cross appeal. That's correct. Okay. okay, thank you. You're welcome. And, and in addition to that, Your Honor, if, that, if I misunderstood that rule, then Rule 28c of the Rules of Health Procedure also allows that if the question is only as to taking exception from a specific Things, but not from the ultimate uh, conclusion in the case, then the appellant can raise that in the response without uh, filing an independent appeal. Yeah, you raise that one when you brief. Yes, Honor. Thank you. Certainly. Moving to my first, uh, my first point, Your Honor, that is concerning Officer Wilker's actions in responding to the violent altercation with Mr. Jones and the assailant. Uh, my friend, Mr. Moore, correctly gave the standard review to this court, in that there are two questions on appeal from the full commission that the findings of fact are supported by competent evidence, and that the findings of fact ultimately support the conclusions of law. Additionally, this court has held that findings of fact are conclusive so long as there is any evidence to support them. And the Federal Department of Crime Control this court held that that includes if there's conflicting
2: evidence. However, as Mr. Moore also correctly pointed out, the designation of a finding of fact as such is not
4: necessarily, is not binding on the court. So a statement that is designated as a finding of fact or of law, this court find otherwise. And that's what I'll lead into in my first point, my first subpoint here. The findings of facts made by the full commission do not support the conclusion of law. So let's first determine what the conclusion of law is. In the portion of the decision order that's designated as conclusion of law, the full commission makes no finding, or I'm sorry, no conclusion regarding directional officer Gulf's actions. Instead, of we able to paragraph 17, of the findings of the fact. We see what looks to be a mixed conclusion of law and the fact, which plaintiff has interpreted to be the conclusion of law. And that is that the whole commission finds that the correctional officer booker did not act unreasonably in responding to the violent publication. So if we do take that as the conclusion of law here, we have to see whether the findings of fact support that. Looking to what findings of fact exist as to the reasonableness of Correctional Officer Booker's actions here in responding to the, intent. we see those primarily in paragraphs nine and thirteen of the decision in order. But the plaintiff would contend that only paragraph 9 contains true findings of fact. Paragraph 15, instead, are not proper findings of fact. You urge this court not to consider them such. That's supported by this court's decision before I incorporate it and And In that succinct opinion, this court held that findings of fact cannot merely be quotations or paraphrasing of evidence or testimony below. Instead, it has to be conscious decisions and conclusions of fact made up from that evidence. But we looked at paragraph nine and can see just that. The full commission found that Officer Cooper was the only officer on the floor at that time. That's a finding of fact. It also found that Officer Cooper failed to give any verbal commands to the assailant. And full commission, paragraph nine, also found that while she attempted to retrieve her pepper spray, ultimately Officer Cooper failed to use it. In paragraph 13, however, we do not see that conscious decision of fact drawn from the evidence. Instead, we just see a paraphrase of Captain Connor's testimony. In paragraph 13, you can see that the court does address certain actions by Captain Connor, but only within the context, I'm sorry, actions of Officer Booker, but only within the context of Captain Connor's testimony. If the full commission found that Captain Connors in his subjective opinion false. Uh, in his testimony, supplanted the role of the public Fact and found that he believes for actions, Officer Booker's actions to be reasonable because he believes she called the code. Because he believes her attempts to retrieve her member's record showed reasonableness. Even if Ms. Hooker's actions weren't reasonable, couldn't this case be decided on proximate cause when we see where the attack wasn't stopped by the subsequent officer? Your Honor, this court certainly can consider proximate cause. Um, the first response, I have two responses to your, to your question in particular. Um, the first is that this court's sole um, role here today is to, again, that the findings of fact made by the commission are supported, and that those findings support the conclusions. And what the commission did was not even against and cause. The commission stopped at whether the duty itself was breached, and finding that she acted reasonably, the full commission wasn't addressing whether there was proximate cause, but rather was addressing whether there was a duty and that duty was breached, which we found did not. So the first argument would be that this court should not substantively consider proximate cause, and it's not the right of here to do But more directly, substantively
2: answering your question, Your Honour. Proximate clause can still be shown here if you're on the line, to the next several conclusions.
4: And specifically that can be found because there is testimony to support the conclusion that uh, Officer Booker's failure to follow policy was the direct and cause here. Uh, there is evidence in the record to show that the attack continued, but the full commission made a specific finding of fact that once Officer Hyman, who was not stationed to sell back was instead stationed in to the hallway, once she ran to the altercation, Gave verbal commands and a five pepper spray. The assailant only got one more hit on Mr. Jones before abandoning his pursuit. When uh, on a redirect by plaintiff's of counsel, Officer Hyman also testified on, on page 102 of the transcript that uh, she believes that if she did not give verbal commands and a five pepper spray, she believes the attack would have continued and that the exam goal was to kill Mr. Jones. Do you agree the assault on your client was a criminal act? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, are criminal acts generally not foreseeable? Um, no, well, Your Honor, gen- as, general, as a
0: general rule, if the criminal act is determined to be an intervening superseding clause, then yes, it would be considered a, a separate. So separate the presumption presumption is individuals obey the law. I'm sorry, Your Honor. The presumption is individuals obey the law. Yes, Your Honor. So how would it be foreseeable that the assailant would, would
4: injure your client to the state? be foreseeable primarily, uh, exactly why the full commission found that it was foreseeable, and that was because Sergeant Pryor and Officer Booker were both on notice that something like this could take place. Officer Booker witnessed that heated exchange earlier that day, I believe, was less than four hours before the attack, and Officer Booker testified that she had a bad feeling something more would happen, something that, a further confrontation between the two, and that's exactly what she reported from Sergeant Pryor. Sergeant uh, Officer Hooker also testified when asked. Uh, she was confused on direct examination as to um, what prior conversation plaintiff's counsel was asking her about. And the confusion arose because she explained she actually considered the uh, heated exchange earlier and the attack to be one incident. That's how related she was. So the full commission in paragraphs 15 and 16 of the decision order correctly found that there was uh, foreseeability to happen because of Officer Hooker's service. Your Honor, uh, also, just to, to more directly answer your question about third party criminal acts, this board and Taylor uh, strongly refuted the defendant's contention that, that would break the causal chain and found that there was no merit. It's specifically because, in the context uh, of an attack like this, it was foreseeable, uh, especially given it's a maximum security prison uh, and that there was violence and gang activity that's uh, undisputed in the record. But then, would that dispense of that element to prove the negligence? Is that so the, uh, the show The fact that, that the has occurred within uh, the confines of a prison. No, the fact that it occurred in a prison does not raise some presumption that there is, uh, there's negligence, but to conclude my first 7 uh, point. Does it now, raise a presumption of foreseeability? Uh, not to my understanding, but something that I was going to address that does raise a presumption of foreseeability is actually something that this court uh, stated. I'll give you the citation here in just a moment. Uh, This court stated in Hicks v. Cannon Inventory Solutions, LLC, that in general, evidence of a defendant violating his own voluntary safety standards constitutes some evidence of negligence. There is a presumption that can be made there. That goes directly to my first subpoint. And that's that. But the commission found that the officer acted no reasonably correct. That's right, Your Honor. So, okay. that, would that not contradict that argument? Would that find it? It certainly would, Your Honor. And that's why the plaintiff contends that the commission is not wrong. So, and to conclude my 1st subpoint, here, your honors, the findings of fact made by the full commission do not support the conclusion that she that all book reacted recently. Uh, and that's primarily because in plaintiff's contention, the only true findings of fact found in the decision order are found in paragraph nine. And what we can see that those findings of fact show is that only two out of four possible policy or procedural steps in responding to a bond occupation will follow. In paragraph four of the decision order findings of fact, the full commission found. That there are generally four things that can be done for policy of prison. Uh, a code should be called, uh, a code should be called, a uh, verbal uh, warning should be given that pepper spray can be applied if the verbal rights are not heeded, and lastly, that other reasonable force can be used. So that was a finding made. And then
2: later in paragraph nine, the commission found that all four
4: failed to give verbal warnings and failed to apply pepper spray. If, your, if this court agrees that paragraph 15 does not constitute the finding of that, then this court in turn would find that the only findings in regard to Officer Booker's actions are that she did not follow two out of four of the steps. So is okay. Officer Booker required to do all four of those steps, or can that be a collaborative effort between all the employees there? sounds to me like Officer Hyman applied the pepper spray. Uh, Officer Booker
0: says that she called the code, or she thought she called the code, and this is somewhat sketchy on that, but she says that she thought she, so is it each individual must do all four of those steps, or is it collaborative uh, between those that are on duty at the time?
4: Well, Your Honor, we would argue that all of the officers on duty have the same training, and that is to follow that procedure. And that all four are, or I'm sorry, all officers are empowered to employ all, all four steps. In particular, here, uh, Officer Hyman, it's almost miraculous that she was able to intervene at all because she was not stationed to the location of the attack. At the time of the attack, which we'll talk more about on my second point, there was only one officer stationed in cell blocks D, E, and F, and that was Officer Booker. The only reason Officer Hyman was able to correctly apply those steps and ultimately save Mr. Jones' life is because the- Officer Hyman applied pepper spray, she didn't call the code, right? So are you saying that Officer Hyman actually applied
2: the steps in a, a proper way, which gets me back to this collaborative okay? Your Honor, you are correct that she did not call the code. She gave her commands and applied pepper spray, and when that worked,
4: she did not need to move to the fourth step, which is to apply additional force. Uh, we would contend that she's failure to call the vote was uh, an, an omission by Officer Heinemann. We do not, however, contend that it should be a collaborative effort because, in this case, again, um, it, 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 is, it happens that it worked out well that Officer Heinemann was nearby when these uh, altercation spilled into the hallway. But had it not, then Officer Heinemann would have been the end, and she did not apply any of the forces. Uh,
1: is it so, no reasonable to attempt to apply these steps, but to trick? When you have two inmates running at you, and then your pepper spray doesn't work, is that unreasonable to attempt to but not be able to because of intervening circumstances?
4: Uh, we, we would argue that it does, Your Honor, and in particular here we have testimony from Officer Booker that she was actually retreating, and in the moment of her retreat, she testified she was acting out of fear and drone. and so we would argue today that the reason she wasn't able to successfully deploy her pepper spray was actually because she was acting unreasonably in the moment. Perhaps if she would have... Uh, thought clearly about it, follow her training and access to Pembroke's spray, she would have been able to do it, but because she was not following the training, she wasn't able to access that members spray.
0: If that's, that's subject a conflicting evidence and the Commission has found that her actions were reasonable, are we free to revisit that? Your Honor, you are free
4: to revisit it if you believe that the uh, true findings of fact are not supported by competent evidence. So in this case, again, the findings of fact that we have that are not merely recitations of testimony are only that she did not follow two of the steps. And the full commission doesn't make any specific findings as to the reasonableness of her attempt to get are the only quotes <laughs> Captain Potters, and that he believes the attempt to be received. Is there a conflict in the evidence, or is it just a commission adjudicating the evidence? Well, Your Honor, that, that actually brings me to my 2nd subpoint, which is that the findings of fact are not supported by competent evidence, and the evidence that does support the conclusion that she's reasonable is only found in one place, and that's the testimony of Captain Connors. And the reason that that evidence should not be considered competent is because Captain Connors all over tracks his state directly contradicts himself. Now this court in the uh, Federal v. Department of Crime Control found that the findings of fact are conclusive even if there's conflicting evidence. In that case, it was a police shooting. The police officer tested in one instance that he was a certain number of feet from the scene at the time of the shooting, and in another instance that he was a different number of feet commission ultimately gave more weight to one of his testimonies, as well as some supporting evidence, and find that he was not an This court upheld that and found that even conflicting evidence is okay. However, here, Your Honor, we have a little bit of different circumstance. We don't merely have a clarification of family congress; we have a direct contradiction, which is not what we have in federal. Here, on page, I believe it's 196, Captain On redirect by the uh, plaintiffs' counsel was again. Um, given a summary of what the Officer Cooper did, that she didn't, she may or may not have the Code, that she did not give her own command, she didn't apply pepper spring, and she didn't use additional tools. And he was asked once again, do you believe these actions to be reasonable? And his simple and succinct response was no. So in light of the fact that the only evidence in the record that plaintiff contends supports a finding or a conclusion, an officer over acted reason is Captain Connor's testimony, and he directly contradicted that own testimony. To argue this court that uh, that is not competent evidence to support that. Well, then the commission also had other testimony from the other officers there, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. And, and the, the testimony that was received was from Officer Over herself, who uh, testified that she understood she did not follow policy. She understood that her duty was to protect Mr. Jones from a reasonably foreseeable danger, and that she did not fulfill that duty. Um, we also have testimony from Officer Hyman to the same exact effect. The only testimony we have as to the reasonableness for actions are from Captain Connors, and it was directly contradicted. Up- you have about two minutes. Uh, two minutes of mine. My- well, I used to have your Okay, thank you, so I'll briefly revisit my second full point, and that is that the full commission aired in, in finding that the plaintiff did not that so There was an inadequate number of dogs uh, in station. Uh, so I was and at the time of the attempt. The simplest way for me to relate this argument to this court is that the full commission addressed one out of two of the theories on this point. Now,
0: are you arguing with the amount of the award your client got? No, Your Honor. So, uh, the cross appeal is challenging. Explain to me then if you're not challenging the amount of the award your client got and you're asking us to affirm that, then what's, what's the basis of your own remaining challenge? The basis of
4: the challenge, Your Honor, is that. Um, there were two holdings. There were three theories of negligence offered to the full commission. There was only one of those that the full commission agreed found the negligence, and that's being appealed. If, for some reason, this court finds that the uh, the defendant appellant wins on that appeal, then that would mean a total loss for my client. Unless this court also finds that those additional holdings of theories of negligence were also error. Um, your Honor, the easiest way for me to explain this argument is simply that there are two theories of negligence regarding the number of employees stationed to sell as the at the time, and the full commission only addresses one in its findings and conclusion. And that is that there, the Morrie uh, Correctional Institute policy was not followed. The full commission found, and uh, the plaintiff today concedes, that there was competent evidence to support that the, that the policy that's in place was followed.
0: If would you, would you want us to re for findings on that issue? That be the proper remedy.
4: I believe so, yes, Your Honor, because two there were two theories given, and they addressed whether the policy was followed, but not whether that policy itself was reasonable.
0: And that's in the event that we would agree with the state on the first issue, right? Yes, Your Honor. Um, so, just to briefly summarize that issue, um, the the commission
2: just entirely failed to address whether the policy itself that would allow for this conclusion, which is that one rookie officer was stationed to guard three
4: separate uh, prison blocks or pods, as they called them. Uh, with up to 150 predominantly violent male offenders in maximum security prison, that any policy that allows for such a result is, on its face, unreasonable. And that's supported by the full commission, not once, but twice, in the most obvious case I would think on this point, which is not being harmed for actions. I think that my time is allowed, so that will conclude my case issue. Okay. Hey, thank you. Thank
0: you. Okay, uh, according to the order, we will now hear from the defendant appellee, Howard Bottle. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, First, Judge
2: Hollings, I apologize that I was not able to address your question about
3: subject matters. It's not your fault. early. I think it's, it's okay, just okay. okay, to make sure we are clear. Uh, if you look at page 50 of the record, you can see that the State or the, sorry, Department of the Public Interest lawmaker and that appeal was timely. Uh, I'll start by addressing uh, the arguments that the council just made about Officer Hooker's liability. So first, uh, Officer Booker, the, the Officer Hooker the Industrial Division correctly that Officer Hooker acted recently. Captain Connor in the only experienced prison official Testifying. Testify that she acted reasonably, but you don't even have to rely on Kathleen Connor's testimony to get there. In fact, Captain Connor this is a fact witness, doesn't actually need to testify on the standard of reasonableness anyway. Um, the standard of reasonableness, this comes from the Supreme Court's case this year, is that the standard of care doesn't change, but the proper degree of care varies with that Officer Hooker had two prisoners running after
2: Like uh, Officer Hyman attempted or
3: complied with most of uh, MCI's policy. Uh, to Carpenter, if you directed, she didn't call the code. She didn't call the code. Someone called the code. Um, but none of this stopped Mr. Thorpe. And while there is conflicting testimony from Officer Hyman about whether she felt that her efforts Pepper Pepper's screen, did or did not stop Thorpe's attack, she did testify several times that she thought she did. And the existence of other evidence supporting the contrary conclusion that her using pepper spray did stop Mr. search uh, under the deferential standard of review given to the Industrial Commission PAS isn't sufficient to reverse the Industrial Commission. I also want to touch on uh, Mr. Jordan's argument that MCS staffing. Policy is not responsible for Jones's injuries. Um, However, uh, Mr. Jones does concede that the policy was followed. Uh, Mr. Jones
2: doesn't point to any evidence
3: to suggest that the policy was unreasonable. I would compare this case to none. Um, that would be, uh, specifically uh, none versus uh, the Department of Public Safety, uh, where there was evidence that there would have been several fights in a prison yard where no prison guards were staffed. Here, Mr. Jones has used no evidence that there was inadequate staffing in cell blocks during meal times because there were, say, several fights during meal time um, prior to Jordan's attack on Mr. Jones. And it is the plaintiff's burden to demonstrate that uh,
1: can we, can we just address one thing? I'm not sure. Um,
2: I read in a, a different case about negligence the fact
1: that the attacker in this case actually had some sort of weapon. Do we consider that here in the scope of whether Booker was negligent or any of the guards were negligent? Your Honor, uh, I think the case you might be referencing is, is one sorry, it's decision. Um, and uh, there the court did consider it, but also did consider not find uh, the department liable. Uh here uh Mr. Jones has not made any arguments or advancing any theories of negligence about the
3: department failing to protect him because it allowed for him to uh make a change. Um an not allowed to have a weapon. That's, that's the policy of the deed of the correction. That is correct, So if he did have a weapon, that may be violated that's the stated policy. Yes, Your Honor. And just to your point, a the counsel is right that Taylor did reject the argument uh, that you sort of alluded to about criminal acts not necessarily breaking the chain of negligence, approximate falls. I would again emphasize how distinguishable Taylor is. So while that argument might not make any sense at all in Taylor, uh, again, the totality of the circumstances. Might be worth considering that in addition to the fact that Mr. Jones was not afraid of Thornton, that they had the history of disputes, that Officer Booker said that she was probably overreacting and requesting backup, that Thornton's attack was a criminal act, and that usually a criminal acts break the chain of negligence. Um, and Mr. Thornton's attack is particularly bizarre and heinous. I mean, the fight is about in games, and if he stabs him five times with
0: his shame, uh, that's a pretty unforeseeable series of events. Um, There's probably a statute that prohibits uh, weapons inside of prisons, not just a, a Department of Correction policy.
3: I, I would imagine so, Your Honor. I cannot name that statute for you at this moment, but I
1: would imagine so. Uh, your uh, I mean, dog. Would, would that still, would that alleviate at least the prison's duty to Say not, not quite at all. So, the
3: prison does have a duty to protect inmates from reasonably foreseeable harms. Uh, so, if Sergeant Pryor not reasonably foresee Jordan's violation of then what this court said in Taylor is that she did not uh, have a, a duty to take any action. Other to it. But the, the department is not being sure of the safety of all inmates, and it's not liable every time uh, a prisoner is attacked. Nor is it never liable because an inmate has no weapon, correct? That's also correct. Um, I believe I've exceeded
0: my time. Well, I underestimated the original time. You have about. Um, about five minutes. Okay, are um, Thank you.
3: Uh, just a few final points that I, that I want to make sure that I address before I sit down. Um, I think the uh, Council actually did a great job of explaining the instances in the Debt Commission's findings of how when they are making uh, actually answering mixed conclusions, and I ordered to the to carefully, at then, those, again, I think when it comes to Sergeant Pryor's negligence, the only so-called factual findings that she had noticed are actually conclusions
0: of law that are not supported by the true factual findings. Do you want to comment on the Council's reference to the Captain's inconsistent testimony? Uh,
3: yes, Your Honor. Um, I agree narrowly with uh,
2: what the Council says about uh, Captain Connor. Being asked on
3: several different occasions if he called Officer Booker, responded reasonably, and on one occasion saying yes, and on another occasion he does say no. But I think there, I would respond to two points. First, uh, if you look at all of Captain Connor's testimony, I think it is clear to me that he did not believe that Officer Booker responded unreasonably. He kind of has a link. Description of how it's common for officers to freeze up when they feel like they are under the attack. But as I started my rebuttal, you don't have to rely on Captain Connor's testimony about whether or not Officer Licker was reasonable. Um, he's not. He's a fact witness, not an expert witness, and if you consider all of the circumstances. Um, the sort of adrenaline. Officer Booker had the fear that she had when she saw the officers running towards her. It concluded, as the other commission did, it was reasonable for her um, not fully comply
1: with the policy. So uh, I understand that Officer Booker had training prior to this. For actually getting two training, correct? Two months, I think, prior to this. Yeah, very briefly. And and wasn't that training be designed? Um, so to ensure that an officer doesn't freeze up or behave as she did in this situation. I don't have any firsthand knowledge about that training, obviously. I
3: think your point that it probably does address what you do are um, fearing for your life, but it is important to remember that this was Officer Walker's first instance of fearing for her life. Uh, and additionally, um, even if that training, does address that Captain Honor testified that it wasn't uncommon for many
0: prison guards including some aren't just too much for your training to freeze up when they feel their safety is threatened. Well, the commission had the benefit of Officer Hyman and Booker too, correct? Yes, sir. Honey. As well as the, the, uh, the sergeant uh, prior Did he testify and as well? The sergeant prior did not testify. So his commission uh, in light of the experience that Officer Hyman had, pepper spray, commands to stop.
3: The commission could consider that testimony as to the reasonableness of Booker. Is that fair? Yes, Your Honor. I think it's important to distinguish the circumstances surrounding Officer Hyman and Officer Booker. Officer Booker has few prisoners around the border. Sir. Officer Hyman sees this attack and has time to plan to go in. Of my time now, so I am happy to address any other issues that this court has. But if there are no further questions, I would urge the court to reverse the industrial commission's decision. But if the court declines to reverse the industrial commission's decision, I nevertheless
0: urge the court not to disturb the commission's conclusion that neither Officer Booker nor MCI staffing policies are involved for Doris. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. And, sir, you have about 10 minutes as well. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honors, you a few brief points of First, I'd like to address what has become, I think, uh, some of the problem of
4: my friend's argument, and that is approximate cause. Uh, Mr. Moore makes several arguments concerning notice of um, the attack, whether there is sufficient evidence to support that notice. Or, uh, fact, of finding reasonable for and well, the reasonable is this would go to whether or not, if the conduct
0: was reasonable, that would go to duty and breach, not causation, correct? That's correct, you're right. So I don't think there's any dispute about what happened, but I guess what was the officer's obligation in her position given the facts that she was confronted with? Is that a fair test? Yes, absolutely right. So if, if she was reasonable, if her actions were reasonable, then she did not breach whatever duty she owed to your client. That's right. Okay, so, and we have a finding from the commission that her actions were reasonable. Yes, sir. Now you challenge you that, I, I understand that, but if, 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 if we uphold the commission's finding all that, finding all conclusion, we don't even go to proximal calls, do we not? That's correct. And, and, Your Honor,
2: the reason it's so important for this court to make a determination whether paragraph 17 is a finding or a conclusion is because I believe it to be a mixed, uh,
4: mixed finding of, of fact
0: and law. That would go to our ability to review
4: it, correct? That's correct, Your Honor, except that conclusions uh, of law are reviewed by this court de know. Right. That's what I'm saying. If it's, fact, if it's factual, we're bound. If it's law, we can review the that that's right, Your Honor. If, if it's factual, the court is bound so long as this court also believes that there are, are other sufficient findings of fact to support it, and that those findings are in turn supported by uh evidence, um, which is the argument that I made in my case in chief.
2: But, Your Honor, the, the, what I'd like to just uh, summarize as far as any argument concerning
4: proximate cause of notice, um, in, in their brief, the state um, cites two cases such as uh, Schaffner and Grimes that talk a lot about their, their car accident cases that talk about the but the issue with uh, the arguments in those briefs and some of the arguments that we've heard today is that there's a little bit of a conflation of the rules here. The notice that's being talked about in those cases by this court is not notice of what injury is going to occur, as the defendant's brief would suggest, but rather notice of a dangerous condition. So I think that's a really big deter- a distinguishment that has to be made because proximate be cause, as this court held in Bryant's v. Gilbert, proximate cause, all the that the plaintiff needs show is that through the exercise of reasonable care, a defendant might foresee that injury would result from his of remission or that consequences of a generally injurious nature might occur. And that's what we have here. Any attempt by the state to uh, further restrict that rule or to expand what plaintiff needs to prove to show proximate cause would be inappropriate here. Uh, any argument concerning what plaintiff's subjective belief was, any reporting that the victim made uh, This court, in my knowledge, would never helped. That the subjective opinion of the victim is a determination of proximate cause, but rather what the reasonable objective foreseeability of the total feasor So, as far as proximate cause, Your Honor, any argument concerning notice of what was going to happen or that what was going to happen was imminent has been flat, flatly rejected by this court time and time again. And we would urge this court to, uh, to, to reject any such argument. and find that if you do address proximate cause, if you get that far, that notice of the injury or imminence of the injury is not required, but merely that there was some foreseeability of a generally injurious consequence. Right. Uh, my friend also talks about totality um, of the circumstances, and also argues that looking at the totality, there's not enough evidence to support the conclusion. I hope that I'm summarizing that argument correctly. I would argue that this court. Would not have the, of the jurisdiction to do what my friends is asking, which is to look at all of the other methods, specifically regarding the full commission's finding that Sergeant Pryor is negligent in failing to heed the warnings from Officer Fulker. And The reason for that, Your Honor, is that the totality of the circumstances is the standard, but the full commission is the fact. And the full commission has found that there was notice in paragraph 15. In paragraph 16, the full commission also specifically found that there, is, there was notice that there might be a violent altercation in the future. And further specifically, that the uh, defendant's failure to take any action was a failure to safeguard plaintiff from a reasonably anticipated date. If that is a finding of fact, which we would contend it is, and it's supported by competent evidence, which I'll talk about in just a moment, then that is final. And any argument about totality and additional evidence that the full commission could have considered is improper for this court to consider because that finding of fact must be conclusive. So let's just talk very briefly about what evidence does support that finding because my friend also argued that the uh, sorry—the evidence is not competent to support that public effect. Um, specifically, Officer Booker testified in no, un- in no ambiguous terms that she witnessed this, and she has a sense about things, and she was just finished training, and believed that something bad was going to happen. She testified that she went to Officer Fire as soon as she was able to under her rounds were up, and relayed that information the full commission correctly found that that information was related there was something, uh, another violent altercation would take place in the future. Now, that information,
0: if I understood that Officer Booker conveyed to Sergeant Pryor, was it that words had been spoken in the cafeteria between these two? And, and that she believed something, you know, something more would occur in the future. Okay, so are, are you relating back to, uh, would that be the triggering event? Uh, well... Yes, and no, Your Honor. The constructive notice of a dangerous condition, again, not notice of the injury that's going to take place, but constructive notice of a dangerous condition is imputed
4: from an agent to a principal. In this case, once Officer Booker observed the heated altercation, the prison was then constructively on notice that something may take place in the future, and that was based on her observation after finishing training and being able to observe those things
0: an old saying that mere words, no longer no matter how violent, it does not constitute assault. you remember that from law school? Yes, yeah, certainly. So with the fact of just a verbal exchange between the two inmates, would, I mean, would that put some duty on the state to act just on those, I'm sure those types of things happens all the time. Certainly it are. And, and verbal arguments. Yes, yeah, yeah, there Doesn't it take more than just that? We contend to know your honor, and that's actually supported by um,
4: the the testimony of the witness who who heard plaintiff the most, be Captain Connor. Captain Connor testified that it's based on training; it's within the uh, the reasonableness of each officer observing whether or not this is something that needs to be uh, followed up on. An officer, Booker, in that time, being a trained officer and the only one on duty at that location, determined that that heated exchange was enough that she believed something would take place. Wasn't there something to do with? way the assailant was
1: standing was the assailant at that point, but wasn't there more body language that, that accompanied just the mere words? Yes, yeah,
4: sure. she said that it was, it was, she could tell right away that it was contentious and actually moved closer to be able to overhear and then confirm that it wasn't deep contentious. She also noted the, the verbal, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the body stance at the time of the attack, noting that she believed she saw the assailant swear off its return with the plaintiff right before the assailant. Um so you're argue for the sport of it, no, no, Your Honor. I wouldn't think so. Uh, and, uh, so, sir, Your Honor, I, I believe that this court's uh, articulation of the approximate cause will rise, being that as long as there's some objective notice or, or foreseeability of a generally, generally injurious consequence that would be occur in the future, that the findings of fact are sufficient and controlling
2: on this court to that. We've got about a minute to close. Thank you, Your Honor.
0: Tyson, I believe I'd just like to mention lastly
4: that two of the, the questions that you asked, uh, one of my grandmother last word, I think very pointed in that whether Captain Connor's uh, inconsistent statements are, are worth noting. And I think it is because the full commission itself, in paragraph 15 or 16, I can't remember, noted that they gave no weight to his testimony as to the reasonfulness of Sergeant prior to action, specifically because he contradicted himself. So, in that same way, we would argue he contradicted himself again as um, but you would agree the Commission had the benefit of, of uh, uh, the, the other two officers' testimony. Yes, yeah, sure. They could view the totality of all under the counter. Certainly. Sir. Sir, for the foregoing reasons, the plaintiff perspective of this court affirmed the decision of the full Commission as it relates to the finding of negligence on Sergeant Fire and failing to protect Mr. Jones from reasonably foreseeable danger and uh, reverse of demand specifically the holdings that Officer Booker acted reasonably in response to the attack and that there
0: was an adequate number of guards on duty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your good arguments. Uh, let's give the, uh, the council a hand. Yeah. We would invite you to stay just a moment, and also there is going to be a reception in the lobby, and the school extends invitations if you'd like to. Uh, come. We will adjourn court, we're going to stay a moment to answer any questions that the students may have. So would you adjourn court? This session of North Carolina, court field is now adjourned. Thank you. You're at ease. Please be at ease. And Should touch call? I just wanted to recognize my phone number. White and my bird, Lynn Johnson, in the for As I mentioned earlier, uh, all three of us are proud graduates of school. Judge Collins and I also both teach here as well. i, teach, I have class tonight. <laughs> so uh, but I would uh, ask for any questions or comments from any of you in the audience, either to us or to counsel. Please don't ask about the outcome of the case because we don't even know that ourselves yet. But if any any comments or questions directed to the court or to counsel who are here, and this is a unique opportunity that we would invite you to please take advantage of it too. Any questions? Yes, sir? Yes, Hannah? for <laughs> life.
4: similar. Um, I don't prepare so much of a speech as I do uh, prepare what I want to say for my points and what I would respond if the question that i anticipate anticipated to ask. Um, and I'll go ahead and bold or highlight things that I need to get out to make sure that uh, if I can, and what allows me so I can direct the argument in that direction. And anticipating how to spin the answer of a question back into here's my roadmap uh, is a skill that, that my court coach has I'm going to add one
1: thing. I did take the court team from Campbell up to a competition, and in one of the rounds, the judges asked him no questions, which was very
2: unnerving. To be able to talk, um, at least for most of the entire time, you might not get to talk the entire time, but at least to be
0: able to do it. Dean Leonard and uh, Judge Stroud have also joined us. And again, Dean, we would like to thank you for hosting us today. Judge Stroud is here too, and we just thank you for the opportunity to come back and to be here today, and for hosting us and, and for the reception I think you have down for us in the lobby. Well, we're happy to have you anytime. Thank you, Dean. Thank you. Other questions? I thought I was on the hand. Yes. Um, yes I have a question for your council. have you have any new practice at
4: the trial level? And so how has that impacted your health practice? Yes, I have practice at the trial level. And... Uh, I will, I'd say that uh, a sort of argument of this kind is very similar to motions practice um, in, in style. Um, it's going to be a little bit quicker, maybe not quite as organized as motions motion practice, but it's very similar and when you're, you're, making, you're writing a brief, you're making an argument that follows very you're a
3: brief generally. So I'm not going to be general counsel. I'm just like, sitting in an office. all for me, but let's assume the
0: problem. Any other questions? I'd like to make an observation. The entire front row, except for the last two seats on my right, uh, have connections with my chambers. I've got Lynn that's interning with me now. Maybe extra, you're next turn, right Lynn? Getting credit for that. Uh, Marissa's coming on board with us as a as a full-time clerk when she graduates. she got Blake and Jacob Bunting that's been with us. He's a repeat. Uh, He's been with us a couple times. We enjoy having him. we got Randy on the end. Uh, So I've got the entire front row. (laughs) (laughs) That brings up an interesting question. Um, In anticipation of today's argument, I asked my executive assistant, Christine Dunn, some of you know, to go back and, and track the number of Campbell Law clerks that I've had. The number's 19. And we also track the number of interns, externs, I've had the chamber from Campbell, the number is 52. So we're always looking for good students to come to intern with us and to do externships with us for credit. Um,
2: I think all of us are sponsoring. Chambers for the school to bring us
0: interns. It's a wonderful experience. Uh, you're going to get law school credit. Occasionally you'll get a free lunch. So you can come for the food and come for the camaraderie. But the opportunity to see how the pellet Chambers works is uh, really immeasurable. And uh, so I would ask you also, if you're interested in clerking, uh, each judge receives
2: uh, applications in their chambers individually, and so I would encourage you to contact the judge who you would
0: like to to uh, intern or to clerk for. And uh, we just thank you, Judge Collins. No, nice well, uh, only that two of my current three law clerks are our Campbell grads, and um, one
2: of my two incoming clerks is a Campbell grad. So um, I do I do like our Campbell students quite a bit.
1: And we're reasonably close by. (laughs) Uh, Any other questions
0: before we adjourn? Okay, I thank
2: you for coming, and uh, we we are at rest. Thank you. All right.